It's been harder to write these lately. I'm living in a very jaded, distrustful territory. My home lies in a rural area with a lot of families who have spent their lifetimes holding on to agricultural traditions. Their livelihoods based on routines and belief systems and standards that predate the existence of modern universities, more morally questioned and upheld shifts in society. Sometimes you can look out over the mountain here and feel like you're standing in the past. You can hear ghosts whispering in your ear, Hey, you gotta get up and go to work. When that sun comes up, it's going to be too hot to be bent over in that field pulling weeds. You got to get that stuff done before breakfast. Just this week, the highways here went from stark, loud caravans, blaring horns and heating up back roads, to complete silence in one day. The distrust here is thick. I've seen people with their guns strapped to their waists in grocery store parking lots. I watched the joy across the country from my little laptop in a cold room on the second story of the old house because I didn't see that joy when I went into town. I stopped into a little country gas station to fill up my vehicle and an older black man got out of his truck and edged near me because he had to pass me to get to the doorway of the store. This man felt, overall, stressed out, scared even, and watched me studiously to see how I was going to treat him before he got near me. I gave him my best, most heartfelt smile, I'm sure with a touch of sadness, knowing that he felt this way. I tried to smile with my whole body. I suddenly felt a rush of love for this man, and he began to ease off, relax, and walk at a normal pace towards the door. I realized the degree of racial tension in that moment, in my community. Yes, it's been harder to write these podcasts over the past several weeks. It's hard to be motivating, uplifting, when you're surrounded by paranoia, anger, so much stress and confusion. But then I imagine, what was it like for those men during the heat of the Civil War, a year after it had started? 1862. Brothers wondering if the regiment they were about to attack had their siblings in it, if they were going to find them dead, and finding themselves in the position where they had to build up the rest of the camp, keep their company charged up and ready to go, despite the fear and the exhaustion. Like the deep divisions that are sneaking through our country between blue and red tribalism, racism and economic stress still running pretty high, there was that war, once upon a time, that waged between the North and the South based on these very same types of affiliations. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm a storyteller. I'm an independent writer and artist. I hold varied degrees in journalism, marketing and graphic design, and phlebotomy and counseling. I know how your blood runs. I know how our minds work. 
And now I live in the wilderness studying nature. And I use all these things to learn more, keep myself going and evolving, and becoming a muse for anybody who needs me. Welcome to my show. I have this habit of walking out onto my deck every morning. First thing, breathing in the air, looking out over the old field, watching the water rush by, and I close my eyes and I thank my lucky stars for these simple, beautiful things that keep me alive, these things that I have that bring me peace. And then, as the world wakes up and the messages start coming in, and the phone starts ringing, a darker picture starts to take over. Tribalism. Us versus them. Conflict starts happening more often when we start running out of resources. Money. Access to medicine when our kids are getting sick. Access to transportation. All the things that we need that are getting more and more expensive that a lot of us still might take for granted. People without computers at home, people without cars, single parents who have a hard time managing rent, worried every single day about whether or not they're going to have to watch their kid live on the streets. It's expensive to keep decent, healthy food in the refrigerator. Not everybody has a real refrigerator. People are out there trying to make a decision between paying an electricity bill or a gas bill because they can't afford both this month on time. There's less space. There are more people. We're overcrowded. We've just been through one sweep of a virus that killed thousands of people and left children without parents, without grandparents. We've watched the ugly underbelly of America's racist judicial system expose itself right in front of everybody out on the streets. And the embarrassment and the shame of it has triggered even more anger, more propaganda. A lot of people feel like they're being blamed. A lot of people feel like targets. A lot of people have just been shut up in their homes, lost their jobs, started struggling so hard to make ends meet that they don't even have time to focus on everything that's going on right now. So in addition to a tribal state of mind, we're sitting in a space of unpredictability, and a lot of folks just aren't that good at handling not knowing the future. Tribalism is at its peak right now because humans are social animals, and we need each other to survive. So we're naturally going to look for our kind and hang on to those guys for support in an unstable society. The politics of hate have worked, not because we're all stupid, but because we're all exhausted. Suddenly, the guy who doesn't agree with you politically isn't just misguided anymore. He's evil. We're splitting up families and old friends and colleagues over this, and that's getting dangerously close to that same tribalism that led us into the Civil War back in 1861. But before we get too dark and depressed about it, let's remember that we have something that tribal animal societies do not have. We have minds evolved to a point where we can exercise self-discipline. 
use those incredible minds to counteract this base instinct before it takes over us like a drug, pushing us to do something that we might regret a year from now. Creatures in the wild almost never change their perceptions and their actions, but we can, and we do it all the time. Our minds are always on alert to the possibilities of new coalitions. We're capable of working together, designing medicines to treat disease, while hyenas are stuck in an eternal tribal mode of violence all their lives, intimidating and taking over territories in large numbers. That's just what they do. But we can do more. So while it's hard holding on to motivation and coming up with words of inspiration lately, I can And I will, because I'm more evolved than a hyena, and I've got more mental stamina than one. Living in and depending on groups for survival is the oldest tactic in the world. Its primary function is to keep alive those individuals that are weaker and don't have a lot of built-in weapons. But when you evolve mentally, spiritually, into someone who can think quick on your feet— Find out alternative ways to protect yourself and your family and become more innovative, then you start to graduate to a higher place, a place that doesn't depend so much on that tribalism anymore. And when we don't have to depend so much on tribalism, we tend to become more compassionate people. Hardcore, strict tribalism feeds off fear and insecurity. But once you've found your security, you've usually found your inner peace. I found my security through exercising self-discipline, and it took me years. I had to practice every day, like I was practicing piano lessons. It was hard. I didn't grow up financially secure at all. I wasn't raised in a stable family. We fought for everything that we had. We were a broken family. I remember my mother with three daughters, fresh from a divorce, looking desperately for a place for us to live. We ended up in this alcoholic guy's messy, dark trailer for a while. He was nice, a good-hearted man, just had a, a serious alcohol problem, and he felt sorry for us, and he moved in with his mother temporarily, letting us stay in his trailer while Mama looked for a job and looked for us an apartment. It wasn't your typical divorce where the woman gets half of everything. We were left out in the cold. Mama had a bad lawyer who didn't much care. Dad had a lot of money, and she ended up getting only $300 in child support per month total for three girls. And she didn't have a job or any kind of degree. She'd been a traditional housewife for years. We barely had food in the house. I remember feeling thankful that I had a bed to sleep in, but hating that dark, damp room in that old trailer and staring at those ugly, fake panel walls every night, looking over at the few hand-me-down clothes I had hanging in one of those closets with the, the sliding doors that always get stuck and are so hard to open. It always smelled like a basement in there. 
We took out about five large trash bags full of empty beer cans when we first moved in. Mom was determined to clean the place up before getting us inside and settled. And then I left home when I was 15 without any degree, found a job in a fast food joint, worked on my feet all day with a bad disability and chronic pain that I still have now, which was made worse from working on my feet at such a young age for so many years. And I put myself through college. So I didn't grow up knowing what security was. It took me a long time to find it. Emotionally, mentally, I had to work on myself, on my own anger. I had to learn self-discipline. And I made a lot of mistakes on my way to where I am today. But we all have the capacity for it. Self-discipline is what makes us better than a tribe of hyenas, pushing other animals around and stealing from them out in the wild. But first, I believe anyway... The thing to do is to take the time to learn and understand where that instinct to get angry and stay angry is actually coming from, in ourselves and in the other people around us. Because that seems to keep us from passing judgment on each other too quickly and letting that anger turn into an overflow of hate towards other people. And it really does help with discipline. Self-discipline is hard. And when I exercise it, I want to make it as easy as possible to achieve. So I have to start understanding the people around me, what's happening around me, and chill out first. People on the opposite side from our viewpoints, they're coming from places that we don't understand. That's why they're on the opposing side. If we understood each other, we wouldn't be fighting so hard against each other, would we? Now, the downside to understanding people comes from when you realize those people aren't always going to extend the same courtesy to you. That's frustrating. But it shouldn't be a deterrent to evolving yourself as an understanding, compassionate person. I can dislike and even hate everything that somebody may be doing without hating that person now. And that builds up my self-discipline just a little bit more. You know, I got a lot of practice with self-discipline in a while back already (laughs) in the form of abstinence when I realized I wasn't wired for strict monogamy. Something that I talked about briefly in last week's podcast, actually. I had to learn to step back and put a stop to my instincts to become a slave to temporary infatuation. And it was difficult. But it set me up and on my way to learning more intense and more rewarding forms of self-discipline. And it's such a breath of fresh air to be at this point where I'm no longer feeling these uncontrollable urges to jump off a bridge and dive headfirst into anything before I really feel it out. I used to do that. And so I used to be involved in a lot of sketchy, unstable relationships with people. Because being a slave to infatuation usually leads in that direction. Sometimes it can be just as strong as a drug addiction. 
and you have to handle it that way. I did. And I'm happy to say that I'm on my third year of not jumping into situations like that. And it really feels good. I haven't hurt anybody or misguided anybody. I haven't set myself up in any relationship naively thinking that I could sustain something that I'm just not wired to do. And therefore, I haven't driven yet another relationship down the drain. I'd rather never do it again than to be somebody's source of stress and pain. That doesn't make me happy. That quick fix, that immediate satisfaction from intimacy isn't worth watching somebody suffer because I was selfish for a moment in time and convinced myself that I could be a traditional kind of partner just because I wanted it so bad in the moment. Self-discipline taught me to recognize infatuation and separate it from love long enough to get to know the person at least that I was dealing with and figure out if we psychologically matched in that regard. And so now I can apply self-discipline to almost anything. I've gotten over that hurdle of the hardest kind, that animalistic base desire that we all have. It's hard to control. It makes us do stupid things. It makes us lie to ourselves just to get our fix. And this is the same thing that happens when we're up against an opposing group of people we might not share the same values with, if we're just looking at the surface. Because when we look deeper than that topical layer of angst and chaos, I'll bet we'd start to find a lot of common ground and a lot of the same values. And if that opposing side doesn't reciprocate, then be satisfied with yourself and your own conscience that you took the time and put in the effort to understand and it made you a better person with a better character. Don't ever expect anything. Do it for your own inner peace and your own inner growth. That's the only way to do it. You take care of you And everything else will slowly start to work itself out. Might take a long time, but it will. We don't have to succumb to this much tribalism. We don't have to degenerate into angry, out-of-control, blind action. And to end this episode, I'm going to read something to you. Real Letters from the Civil War, dated 1862, June My dearest mother, I know we're right. We must defend our homeland and our way of life. We have no choice. We are Virginians first and Americans second. My dear big brother Jed does not feel this way. He does more thinking than I do. I follow my heart and my home. Oh, how I wish we were fighting side by side instead of against each other. I miss him so. God be with him in this awful hour. Tonight we're sitting around our campfire, cooking supper. Beans, salt pork, and hard bread. We're so sick of this war. We talk about home all the time. But we talk about food even more. Having enough food is our first worry. After food, the biggest comfort is coffee. At any time of day or night. 
Now my friends are singing The Girl I Left Behind Me. It cheers us to sing about going back to a pretty girl. Thoughts of home and those we left behind keep us going. I hope to continue this letter tomorrow. Love from your son, Bo. July 1st, 1863. Dear Sister Rose, Will you and Mama ever forgive me for joining the Union side? I tried to explain before I left. Maybe I think about morality more than most men do. I cannot accept slavery. I believe with all my heart that it's immoral, and that is what forced me to join this side. I hope you can make Mother understand. We all fear the battle tomorrow. Still, the men sit around the campfire singing and writing letters. They're singing a song about going back home to the girl I left behind me. We need songs to cheer us, our weary hearts. The younger boys talk about their fears. They fear being separated from the unit. They fear dying alone. They fear not being identified if they die. A boy sleeping next to me, he's only 15. Tonight he told me, as the bullets were flying over me today, I thought what a foolish boy I was to run away from home and get into this mess. I would be glad to see my father come after me now. He said he marched off with 34 soldiers from his town, and now, two years later, only four are still alive. Many young boys joined to escape the boredom of farm life. They expected a good time, an adventure. Not much talk about glory or honor now. We talk about going home. Who would have thought that it would take this long, two years? After this is over, I want to go home to Virginia. I hope you will accept me back. I will finish this letter tomorrow. Love from Brother Jed. July 2nd, 1863. Dearest Mother, I'm lucky I can continue this letter. I want you to know everything, but I don't want to frighten you. Today was the worst ever. It was the second day of fighting here at Gettysburg, a town in southern Pennsylvania. General Lee has most of our army here. We came so far north to bother Mr. Lincoln and show those Yankees that they just gotta let us go. We've been marching since I started this letter. Before Gettysburg, our men were ready for a fight. Before this battle, those Union Yankees were running away more than they were fighting. Now we're deep in their territory and they're fighting harder. Today we fought up on Cemetery Hill. We attacked going uphill with a light in our eyes. They were hiding behind a stone wall and shooting down on us as we came through the trees. It was terrible to see so many men falling down on that hill. My group charged, and then we fell back. For a while, the Yankees quit firing on us, so we thought that they had retreated. But just as we went up through the trees, a Yankee officer yelled, Charge! Charge! And all those Yankees came down on us with bayonets. Half my regiment was killed, wounded, or captured. I don't know how I survived. Have you heard which regiment Jed is in? I pray he's not here. Love from the battlefield. Your son, Bo. Same day, July 2nd, 1863. 
Dear Sister Rose, We're still camped outside a small town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. We're on Cemetery Ridge, the hill that we held yesterday. Tonight I feel the heaviness of this terrible war more than I ever have. I'm so afraid Brother Bo is across the field from me, camped out in the trees somewhere. Instead of sleeping across the room from each other, we sleep across this deadly battlefield. I can see the light of the rebel campfires. They must see ours. It was bound to happen that we would meet in battle. Brother fighting brother, it's wrong. I know his regiment, the 1st Virginia. I know they're there. I pray I don't see him tomorrow. I pray they don't attack again. Do you wonder which regiment I joined? Since I'm not from the North, I can join any one. We Southerners are welcomed. I'm in a regiment from Maine. I have a spectacular commander, Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. He's a professor and a graduate of Harvard University, but he's as good a fighting man as any West Point man. Before the battle, he talked to us and said, All the men who have died in the past are with you today. That was inspirational. During the battle, the rebels kept coming, even though it was uphill. They'd appear through the trees, stop behind one and fire. We'd fire back, then reload. They'd shoot at us again. Men were falling all around me. Finally, we ran out of ammunition. Most commanders would retreat from a battle at that point, but not Chamberlain. He said, Fix your bayonets, boys. We're charging on them. And so we did. When they attacked again, we charged down that hill at them. They were so surprised to see us charging with our bayonets that most of them ran away, or they gave up, and we captured them. That was a masterly thing for Chamberlain to do. Unfortunately, we lost half our regiment in the battle. When this cruel war is over, I hope to continue my studies. I'd like to be a college professor like Colonel Chamberlain. He gives fine speeches. He sounds like a preacher. I can see why women fall in love with preachers. A professor is something like a preacher. From your loving brother, Jed. The next day, the Confederate charge ended in disaster for General Lee's army. Jed searched the battlefield and found his brother, Bo, lying on the ground alone, dying from a bloody wound. Bo asked him to make sure their mother received his letters. Jed held Bo in his arms until he took his last breath. This has been Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'd like to thank my biggest supporters, Sheila McGregor, Chris Nolan, William Bishop, Arnold Bloom, Robin Umber, Bruce Presson, and Yvonne Ragland. I'd like to thank those of you who have donated to the virtual tip jar via PayPal, and I'd like to wish everybody a safe, beautiful weekend full of love, inspiration, and new prosperity.